Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we'll be talking about industrial action affecting the charity sector as the cost of living crisis bites and how charity management can try and prevent workforce dissatisfaction from reaching that level in the first place. And in the Good News Bulletin later, we'll be covering the growing trend of festive charity tractor runs. Looking forward to that one. But first, last week we put out a poll on Twitter asking the question, do you think it is acceptable for charity workers to go on strike? It prompted quite a reaction. The overwhelming response, with over 93% of votes, was that yes, of course it is acceptable for charity workers to go on strike. Not only is the idea of strike action morally permissible, but it is a fundamental right, and we were criticised for framing the answer as a moral dilemma. We were accused by more than a few respondents of being tone deaf by even asking the question in the first place, and effectively gaslighting the staff who have recently announced strike action. Now, it wasn't our intention to cause upset or anger or cast any aspersions on those workers who have issued a strike notice. But rather, we wanted to gauge the view of the voluntary sector at a time when industrial action is on the rise across the board as times are getting tough. Now, many of you will know that nurses are set to go on strike over pay for the first time in their history. And that wasn't a decision that they would have made lightly. And I'd imagine that it's been put off for so long because the strike will have such an effect on the vulnerable people they provide services to. People in nursing jobs aren't in it for the money or the great material benefits. And neither are the majority of voluntary sector workers. So things have to get really bad for a strike to be mooted. And there are people within the sector who simply wouldn't go on strike for that very reason. Yeah, but that is, of course, not to say that they shouldn't. It's a personal choice and a right protected by law. As journalists, it is our job to ask questions, but nuance can very easily be lost on social media and we very much regret the upset that the poll caused. What we hope will be a more constructive and useful discussion is how charitable organisations can avoid getting to the point of staff threatening strike action in the first place. And to guide us through the issues, we are joined by two highly qualified guests. Antonia Bantz is the Head of Campaigns, Communications and Digital at the Trades Union Congress, or TUC. She previously spent more than 15 years working in the charity sector, holding positions at charities, including Shelter and Oxfam, to name but two. Hello, Antonia. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Lovely to be here. And also with us today is Idris Arshad. Idris is a human resources professional and has spent the past 12 years working in charity HR departments, including Muslim Aid, CAFOD and St Mungo's. He currently holds the position of People and Inclusion Partner at St Christopher's Hospice in London. Hello, Idris. Hi, thanks for having me. And you have experience of working in HR departments for charities, large and small, with a wide range of causes and staff demographics. Have you seen big differences in the ways in which organisations engage with their staff? Yes and no. I think the end point of engagement is all the same, really. People want their employees to be happy at work and have a good working life. But um, there's subtle differences I've seen in my experience that have worked and not worked. But some of the stuff I saw that did work um, was when I worked as an international HR advisor was um, we had country offices all over the world and they ensured that every staff meeting was live broadcasted in every single office without fail. 
And I think that goes a long way in making people feel included when they're physically so far away. The language that they use when communicating with their workforce was very simple. They didn't alienate people, considering English wasn't everyone's first language. They used really clear and simple messaging and communication to really bring people in. I think that often goes missing in some organizations where we use a lot of jargon, we're all guilty of it. Um, but that's something that's worked. I think something I've personally experienced is um, when it comes to engagement is having that honesty right from the beginning of when you're recruited, really. At the interview stage, people telling you that it's not everything's going well. They give you a really honest um, introduction to the organization on what the role is going to be like. I think in every organization, people want to see their leaders and be you know, with them, see them. I always see that in staff surveys come out as we don't really see leaders and we don't know what they do. And I think that's a powerful thing for employees, especially when they're not um, as physically connected to the organization as some may be. And I think a lot of it comes down to just a genuine care to want people to be happy at work. Mm. I think that goes a long way and that shows as well. Another thing that I've seen is about kind of being clear about what the workplace will give you, what you're expected to give to the workplace. And I think there's no harm in being really clear about that. I think that's where a lot of misinterpretation and miscommunication happens and, and natural disengagement, really. Um, and I think it's just really all of that when you think about it, it's all part of making the culture a place where everything you do, your policies, your processes, but the way you do things is all set up to kind of bring people in, give them a voice um, and actually get that voice and actually act upon it. And I think that's the things that for me make up, you know, places that have done engagement well. No organisation gets 100% right, but I think it's just a continuous effort really to engage people. Yeah, and Antonio, I just wonder what your thoughts are on that same subject, really, in terms of have you seen big differences in the organisations that you've worked with in terms of how they engage with their staff and, and the things that you've seen that have and haven't worked? Well, I mean, every organisation is different. But look, there is absolutely no substitute for recognising a union and negotiating fairly and in good faith with the union about how things work in your workplaces. We're all in the middle of a huge cost of living crisis and the charity sector is not exempt. In fact, given that charity employees often take home a lower wage than they could achieve if they worked in other sectors, perhaps it affects the charity sector even more. And we know that charity organisations and third sector organisations depend on their staff. For most of us, our staff is the biggest cost base uh, of our organisation and we depend on them being dedicated professionals going that extra mile to deliver the services on which people rely. And so I think exactly as Idris has set out, it's really, really important that staff feel like they have a voice in their organisation, not least because many of them will have chosen to work in third sector organisations because they care about the cause and they want the cause to succeed. But what I would say is it needs not to be voice at the discretion of management and the trustees. It needs to be independent voice. It needs to be voice that can say uncomfortable things and ask difficult questions. And the way to do that is to recognise a union. There are a number of unions that are active in voluntary sector organisations. I've been a member of Unite for more than 20 years. It wasn't Unite when I joined it. Um, unions like to change their names, just like charities. There are other unions, Unison, Community, GMB, organising in the charity sector. And I'd encourage charity employees listening to find the union that's right for them. Get involved, join with your colleagues and start negotiating with management. 
That sounds like wise advice. Thank you, Antonia. And um, Idris, from the perspective of an HR professional in the charity sector, what's your view on how negotiations or involvement with trade unions can be effective and also perhaps what other alternatives there might be to joining a union? I think having seen both sides of the coin of where relationships work well with unions and when it hasn't, there's an element that there needs to be a kind of a commonality between the two. Everyone needs to know what the purpose is. And I think, like Antonio touched upon, um, everyone's there for the same purpose. Um, we're all there to either serve someone or help someone in the charity sector. And I think when I've seen it work well, there is a genuine care for all the staff and for service users or clients, really, and that's always there. But I think once that goes missing from the forefront and it becomes a bit personal, it never works well. Um, personal agendas I've seen get involved and it kind of takes the conversation away and it becomes a sort of a battle and that doesn't end up working well for anyone. Um, where I've seen it work well is working with unions to actually get a good result for everyone involved, not just for the employee, not just for the organisation, not just for the manager, but everyone involved just to have a sit down and kind of say, what are we here for, what we're we trying to do and, and really discuss and like Antonio touched upon, um, when it comes to negotiating with trade unions, you have to talk about the not so nice stuff and actually bring forward the challenges and say, we need to talk about this. Both sides, I think, need to um, be prepared to compromise. I'd even say the word sacrifice at times as well, because something's got to give in the negotiation for me. And, you know, if that doesn't really happen, I mean, if I take the you look, look at what's happening in the in the NHS and the potential strikes there with the nurses, mm. it's clear what the issue is. It's a pay issue. It's clear what the ask is. And it's all about the response being, can you do that? If not, why? Just from an organisational point of view, you need to have a space where you can give staff their view. Otherwise, whatever you push out, whatever you try to do will be one way. And you'll either get resistance or no engagement with that initiative or that process or that benefit. And that's only going to harm the organisation. So I think regardless of the laws we've got and what we should be doing, if you think about it from just a business point of view, you want to be given that for your staff to be able to speak up because... It just takes one thing to snowball for your organization to be impacted, for service users to be impacted, for clients to be impacted. So um, I just think it's worth every organization thinking, how do we give employees a voice and actually then use that voice to actually make a change and give them that avenue saying, we've listened to you, we've heard you, this is what we've done. Um, back to the point about how it should work with trade unions. I think the simple stuff goes missing sometimes. The union agreement that organizations have with trade unions, I think, is pretty key to actually stick to. I think because that's the grounding document of that relationship. And always keep in mind, you know, organizational values in those meetings as well. I think are very keen to stop it becoming some sort of battle and some sort of us versus them and really keep people on the same page. And as I said, that compromise and, and, and more sacrifice on both sides is needed. Um, and honestly, at the end of the day, there's... Um, little point in becoming political about workplace issues. It's about being honest, bringing them to the forefront and having that dialogue. And there's no harm with this. Well, I mean, it gets to that stage before a strike can happen. But organisations like ACAS, when, when they get involved, I think are really useful tool to actually preventing industrial action. Because I do believe that no one actually wants to strike. Mm. It's, I think it's a position that's almost as a last resort. Because I think really and truly a choice between agreeing on a decision and industrial action, everyone will pick on agreeing on a choice. But unfortunately, lots of things get involved. And, you know, industrial action, I think, is, um, for me, in, in the media nowadays, um, portrayed in a certain way, not in a positive light. And I think that um, has its own impact, but it is a right for everyone to do it. By law, people should be allowed to. But I do think 
uh, genuinely if both sides really compromised a bit, sacrificed a bit, we shouldn't have to get to that stage. Yeah, and obviously you touched on this, Idris, that there are quite a few strike ballots that have been going on in the voluntary sector recently. Obviously, shelter has been a very high profile one, more than 500 people voted there and they've gone in favour of strike action. Um, Antonia, what in your experience tends to be the sort of primary reasons for things getting to that point? I mean, obviously, as Idris had just touched on, charity workers by and large aren't motivated by high salaries. They want to do good. They want to help people. So in order to think about strike action, things must be getting pretty bad. Well, and that's exactly right. Imagine how much it takes for those housing advice workers who spend every single day in this crisis answering the phone to people who are desperate for help in really difficult situations, not able to pay their rent, suffering the sort of hideous disrepair that we've been hearing about in recent days, sometimes with tragic consequences. These are the people that try and keep people in their homes get people's rent paid, stop people being evicted. They are dedicated professionals to their job. And I am proud always to be a shelter supporter and a shelter donor. Can you imagine what it takes for these workers to say, I have had enough. I am going to take two weeks away from this incredibly important job to make a point because shelters management have mismanaged the negotiations over the annual pay rise so badly that they have put their staff in this position. Idris is absolutely right. Going on strike is absolutely always the last resort and nobody wants to do it. It happens when management won't sit down, won't negotiate, won't be open and honest in a situation which many charities are facing post-pandemic where money is tight. Yes, Unions understand that there may not always be the money to pay the scale of pay rises we think our people deserve. But we can't just take on trust what is coming back to us from management. They need to sit down and negotiate, not just impose by diktat what they think they can afford without opening the books and entering a fair negotiation in which both sides have a proper conversation and work out where the areas for compromise and agreement are. I guess my message to trustees is deal honestly with your union. Open the books, show them the financial situation of the organisation, and for heaven's sake, shelter trustees, get a grip. I'd like to buy my Christmas cards. I'd like to go to M&S and buy the shelter-sponsored sandwich that I always buy this time of year. I'm not going to do either of these things while your staff are on strike. Don't forget you have a reputation with your donors as well that you need to think about. Yeah, that is a very interesting point, isn't it? Because you're undermining donor confidence. I mean, there is so much at stake when workers decide that they are going to go on strike. Um, I don't know how I feel about donating to a charity when I know that their staff are deeply unhappy. I mean, it's clearly problems in management combined with other grievances and external factors such as rising living costs, inflation um, in the context of depressed salaries. Um, I mean, shelter management have been accused of being arrogant and high-handed in their negotiations. Um, last year, there was a, a strike at St. Mungo's, which went on and on for a couple of months, didn't it, where the management was accused of unfairness and bullying um, in their dispute with maintenance staff. So how can strike action be averted once it's been threatened? You know, we're already in a bad place. What tips do you both have for bringing staff and management onto the same page? 
I think, yeah, once that message goes out that there's possible strike action, that's, you know, a big, well, the organisation should see it coming. It's not going to happen out of the blue. It's going to happen when they have the regular meetings. They will know the issues at hand. I think it goes back to some of the things I said. It's Antonio spoke about the honesty is there, but I think it's one thing being honest from your point of view, and then there's a second thing about being perceived to be honest. And I think it's really putting yourself in the other person's shoes and thinking if the messaging isn't getting across and we're getting threats of strikes, what are we not doing? And it requires a bit of reflection, a bit of checking in, where you have to say to yourselves, right, where are we going? How did we get here? Let's press pause before and see what we've done. It clearly hasn't worked. And let's try and reframe ourselves so we can get to a place where strike doesn't happen. And I think if that checking doesn't happen, you end up going down the parallel that you were before that led to the threat and you don't get any better. And I think all people on the table need to get better with data and information and really saying, look, if we're putting this proposal forward, Here's the reasons why, bring it back to your values, bring it back to core data, finances and budgets and so forth. And really saying, this is what we're working from. And I think that goes missing sometimes. It's almost the person's voice gets heard, but the actual reasoning behind it goes missing. And then both sides need to be honest and say, this is what we can give you. And here's why there's a hundred thousand in, in, in the pot and we've used that for this and we've got no more. People may not like that and that's fine as well, but at least they understand where it's coming from. But I think what happens is the voice becomes the person and it's that person talking, then it becomes and the union rather than it's the organisation saying this is our books really. And I think back to what I said about the union agreement, I really think that those sorts of things are really key. If it's outlined right in the beginning, you know the nature of conversations you have and what terms you're working from and really drives how, how those negotiations or the meetings go really. Um, and it comes back to if you're at that stage of a threat strike, what are you prepared to compromise and sacrifice on? Things like money, there's going to be a limit to it. But if you don't put that to the other side to say, this is our pot, they'll never know. They'll keep asking and say, but what about this? And I think not only that, it's making sure you're being really honest because when it comes to money, you can often find where things, you know, you can say, I remember there was a, a random council a few years ago. They made a bunch of people redundant, but they got in about 80 iPads a couple of months later. And, you know, you look at that situation, you think, there was money, why did you do it? So I think similarly, I think really be careful and if there's not enough money, make sure that's correct, but also put that to the other side. In the end, it will tell once the, the strike happens, if the organisation then says, oh, we've suddenly found a bit of money. At that stage, it's about preparing to compromise and really think again, put yourself in other people's shoes on the union side, but also put yourself in the shoes of the impact on the services and the impact on employees really, and really think to yourself, can I make this decision? And I think that's where a lot of organizations um, don't do this well. They don't check in with themselves. Um, and it can become a bit personal, which I think we all need to avoid. Boards of trustees, managers need to be open and transparent about the situation facing their charity in their dealings with their union. We've had a recent example that your colleague Russell wrote up in the magazine. Um, the National Coal Mining Museum up in Wakefield, they gave their staff to understand that because they got a grant from DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, they were bound to the government's pay policy and they couldn't give a rise above 4.2%. Now, you and I know that's absolute nonsense. Trustees of an independent charity must not allow their discretion to be fettered by what their grant maker says they want uh, from their grant. No wonder those staff are on strike absolutely disgraceful way to behave. I'm a trustee of a charity. There is no way I would let my discretion be fettered by a government department telling me what I could do with the employee of the people who work for us. 
if strike action is threatened, you're probably a long way down the road of having poor industrial relations. It costs a lot of money to do a ballot for strike action. It takes a lot of organising. There are an awful lot of legal hoops to jump. This country doesn't like people going on strike. and makes it very, very difficult for people to go on strike. So the staff team must really, really, really think that things are wrong if they're getting to that point. But have no fear. If you're the trustee or a senior manager of a staff team that's about to go on strike, you can ring up the union and say, do you know what? Let's get back around the table right up until the last moment. Mm -hmm. and that is what I would encourage every manager and every trustee in this situation to do. Can you improve your offer? Can you get back around the negotiating table? It is in your hands. You can invest in decent industrial relations through openness, through transparency, through working together to make the experience of working for your organisation better and to navigate the type of organisational change that just happens in charities. You know, we all know that contracts are won and they're lost, services start and then they have to end. It's a frequent experience for people working in the voluntary sector to be on short-term insecure contracts. Working with a union to mitigate some of the difficult ways that massive underfunding by the government of the voluntary sector for crucial services has caused is entirely possible. And that should be the priority. Decent industrial relations. None of us are suggesting that charities have money coming out of our ears. We in the unions are absolutely invested in charities being able to do their brilliant work as well as possible. And we want to be partners in that. And just picking up on that, you know, it's it's not the first time for Shelter. Um, they, they have had difficulties in the past. Um, I mentioned St Mungo's earlier as well. That's two charities that are focusing on tackling homelessness and the housing problem. Do you have any idea, Antonia, like, are there any particular subgroups within the charity sector that are more prone to strike than others? And can you just give us an idea of how unionised um, the sector is in general? So I was looking at the stats for unionisation in the voluntary sector, and I'm afraid the stats from government are just not granular enough for us to be able to see. I would venture that unionisation in the voluntary sector is really, really dependent on where the organisation has come from. Many organisations at times have been spun out of the public sector and so may take a union culture with them. Many long-standing organisations with large staff cohorts have a union culture already. But we're beginning to see unionisation um, in smaller organisations as well. And certainly for us at the TUC, we run the Join a Union tool, which is the first result on Google. It is the third largest group uh, by occupation, charity and voluntary sector NGO employees coming to us to find out about joining a union. And that is because we know that too often in charities, uh, people are on insecure temporary contracts um, often tied to funding, which is often insufficient due to the massive underfunding of services uh, by the last 12 years of Conservative government. And look, unions are the groundbreaking notion that your manager doesn't have all the answers, right? And poor practice in employment is not limited to the private sector or the public sector. It affects the voluntary sector too. No, that's a strong point um, made there, Antonia. I, I wonder if we could to kind of take a bit of a step back and, and look from a slightly positive perspective, if we can. You've both spoken about the the need for transparency on both sides in terms of these kind of negotiations. But I wonder if we go look a little earlier and if you can give us some sort of general tips about how management 
um, and indeed staff and unions can work together to kind of maintain a healthy workplace culture in terms of keeping staff on side and, and sort of minimise these um, industrial disputes. Yeah, um, I think for me, I'm a big fan of data. And I think keeping a pulse on the organisation is always crucial. Things can start off small, but spread very quickly. And I think if you've got not just the systematic data on, on employees, but really going out there and speaking to people, um, on the front line uh, in support services and really understanding what's going on. I think that helps a build a bit of visibility and a bit of connection, but it also builds an understanding of what's going on. Uh, it's tougher to do in the large organizations, but there's always ways to do it. But the values piece is big for me because in, in charities, as much as we've all got different values of each organization, for me, it's all the same. It does, for me, help us get through the tough times. We're not in the jobs because we're in the highest paid bracket. Mm. Now we could easily go to other sectors paid more but we're here ultimately to help other people and I think that's why I'm really big on the values pieces that can make up for a bad day um, and really keep you kind of in line and, and, and help you along the way and I think things like in these times kindness goes a long way just it, it can be as simple as that and I don't think we need to have big engagement strategies and have fanciful stuff sometimes just being kind goes very far if you've got that running through an organization it will go very far um, and, and I think when, when I look at engagement, which is linked to well-being and inclusion for me, as I said, it can be the smallest of things someone says, just a simple how are you, or just a simple token of thank you or appreciation can do wonders for someone's mental health, can do wonders for someone's um, inclusion. I mean, I remember in one particular organization, the CEO stood up in my first couple of weeks and said, I just want everyone here to be yourselves. And for me, that was quite powerful. Where I was in my line, where I was at in my career journey, that impacted me a lot, but that was just one sentence. And for me, I took that away and said, anything can make a difference to someone. And there is no one solution to engagement, well-being, inclusion, but it's just that kind of all-round piece. I think a big thing for me is, is engagement, is meeting the kind of forgotten people, the quiet people that won't necessarily speak up in a meeting, not won't necessarily send an email out. It's really keeping a touch on them, really, because they're the ones that probably come out in the staff survey saying, we don't understand this, we're not sure of this, what's going on here? Um, and I just think giving that a giving a voice through our staff network, through trade unions, but giving a voice to staff. But not only that, listening to it and feeding back on it, saying this is where your voice went. Either went all the way here, or it didn't go far. This was the reason. People want that as much as they might not say. People do really want that. And I think the other big thing around engagement is line managers. Um, their development, their competence goes a huge way um, when it comes to engagement and. That old cliche of you don't leave your organization, leave your boss, sometimes rings true. But if you genuinely have a boss who cares about you, who looks out for your development, who is trying to fight your corner, you do have a better level of engagement than most, really. And you may be upset about some of the things that happen in the organization, but if your manager is good, who you have most of your interactions with, it really goes a long way. And I think those, those are the things that really kind of speak out about me um, when it comes to engagement. And at the end of the day, as you say, remembering that we're all human beings and um, we're dealing with people. Antonio, what's your view on that one? So my take is that, you know, I think firstly, it's important that charities recognise a union and that there is a sort of ongoing dialogue between the union and management about the annual pay negotiation, but also the issues that are arising in the course of the year. We saw some absolutely excellent union engagement during the pandemic about really tricky issues. Who's on furlough? Who's not? How do we make workplaces safe for people to come back to working in person where they haven't been? How do we make workplaces safe for people who continue to work in person throughout the pandemic? There is no substitute for a democratic union branch where people vote for their reps, 
they decide on the issues that are important to them and they give a mandate to the workplace reps to go in and discuss and negotiate with management. I would also say uh, that unions have long been a voice for equality in the workplace. Now, we've seen scandals in the voluntary sector, whether they be uh, around sexual harassment, around race discrimination. People have felt that they weren't able to be fully themselves at work. And what I would say is that as unions, we've been at the forefront of a number of equality struggles over the years, raising these issues through your union, helping get them resolved, making your workplace a place that is genuinely inclusive. That sounds like union work to me. And there are unions working and negotiating on those sorts of topics every single day, from menopause, sexual harassment, anti-racism, inclusion of LGBT and trans workers, um, inclusion particularly of disabled workers, where legal rights are routinely undermined in many workplaces. When it comes to recognising a union and joining a union, I would encourage everyone to be a union. I, I don't know whether you're a union member, address and you don't need to tell me, but it's certainly been my experience that people in HR are always members of the union because they know which way is up. We're not automatons. We have views, and particularly in this sector, we want to do the best work that we can do. So I guess I'll make one final plea, which is that a number of years ago, the TUC and NCVO came up with a statement of principles about how charities should work with unions precisely to avoid uh, these types of issues. Now, I gather there's a new management team over at NCVO. And wouldn't it be lovely if we could produce a lovely updated statement of those principles to help guide charities and get through some of these difficulties? Uh, we'd love to hear from you, NCVO, if you want to give us a ring. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good place to leave it. Um, Antonio Bantz from TUC and Idris Arshad from St. Christopher's Hospice. Thank you so much for joining us on the Third Sector Podcast today. Now for the Good News Bulletin, featuring everything from the positive to the downright strange stories we've spotted in the sector. What's on the agenda today, Andy? Well, as we mentioned before, we're looking at charity tractor parades. As I'm sure many of our listeners will know, Farmers Weekly has been reporting that festive tractor charity runs are on the rise, with farmers spending hours adding bling to their tractors in the form of tinsel and twinkly lights to join processions. Amazing. <laughs> it sounds pretty amazing. Uh, and there is more, so I will plough on. One of the more successful charity tractor runs was in Liverpool last December, coordinated by the Merseyside farmer and YouTuber Ollie Harrison, which raised over £60,000 for Alderhay Children's Charity. A rerun is organised this year on 18th of December, featuring more than 100 farmers and their sparkling tractors to raise money again for Alderhay and also provide food as part of the Fans Supporting Food Banks initiative. I guess they need to make hay while the sun is shining, eh? You might say that, Andy. <laughs> but the Merseyside farmers aren't alone and there's other tractor runs planned in Shropshire, Clangothlin, Warwickshire and Lancashire in the coming months, raising money for good causes from mountain rescue to children's hospices. How exciting. And I just wish that central London was also on that list. Yeah, you're not going to see that many tractors, are you, probably, going down uh, over Waterloo Bridge at this time of year. But it would be fun. Yeah. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. So if you've enjoyed this one, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know about it. And if you have any thoughts on our podcast, 
such as what topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then we are running a survey. You can find the link in the show notes and it should take you no more than five minutes to complete. We'd love to hear your thoughts and thank you to everybody who has so far taken the time to fill in the poll. Yes, rest assured that all of your responses are being carefully analysed and examined, but I'm afraid there are a couple of issues that have been raised that we can't do a huge amount about, such as our voices. Um, Very sorry. (laughs) Yes, thank you to the person who said they didn't like our voices very much, but we value every piece of feedback and we'll (laughs) do what we can. But for now, I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Thank you to our guests, Antonia Bantz and Idris Arshad, and our producer, Nav Pal. Join us again next week. 